COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Welcome, everyone, to one of our most anticipated live casts. And I'll tell you, before even jumping into it, I'll I'll fully I'll fully admit, Suman, you might back me up on this. I was pretty nervous about this one. Knowing that Monica's in the in the mix, nervous. You know what I mean? I was I texted the boys. I'm like, I'm actually kind of. I'm a little bit. I'm very excited to be on with all of you. Oh well, thank you, Monica. So we'll get into the the, the reasons why we're doing this, but you know, obviously for me, it's about the main thing for me personally was creating hope, guys, because. We have a lot of negative messaging out there, a lot of shaming uh, and a lot of, you know, restrictions that don't make sense to a lot of people. And so I think by creating this kind of discussion on exit strategy, not only are we trying to create that hope, but also maybe pressure on some of these decision makers to see the light. You know what I'm saying? Okay. A couple housekeeping things. If you guys want the video sent to you or you want to get the uh, podcast version of this bad boy, Type in news and EWS into the, the chat box and um, you'll uh, get a, a prompt to sign up for that. Second thing, solving wellness, our new, our new um, platform for d- dealing with healthcare provider burnout. We are so proud. We're two weeks in, we're at a hundred members. If you're interested at all, put in SW in the chat box and you'll get prompted to do that. You got online fitness classes, yoga, cooking classes, nutrition tips, how to manage stress all on one platform. And I want to give a special shout out to Kelly Ebbs from Kelly and Carrie uh, Realtors who sponsored 15 memberships for healthcare providers. So those are going to 15 ICU nurses at the Civic. We really um, wanted to thank Kelly. Uh, that's tremendous. Lastly, I want to just thank Julia as usual. She's our social media queen and is going to be fielding some of the questions and, and uh, moderating some of the questions. So you can find her content. She has a great website on nutrition, a spoonful of science. Uh, she'll put the links in the chat box. Okay. I feel like all our panelists basically need no introduction. They're not, they're not new to the quadcast. At all. Hi, Heidi Tavoric, Dr. Tavoric, communication specialist. We got Dr. Zane Chagla, infectious disease, Dr. Sumar Chakrabarti, 
infectious disease specialist. Yeah, do it, do it. I feel so bad. I forgot my, I can't find my shirt. And then Dr. Monica Gandhi. Y'all don't yeah. know how hype, how hype that is to have Dr. Gandhi in the mix, y'all. <laughs> like y'all don't, y'all don't realize. But yes, this is a true privilege. So thanks everybody for joining. We are going to start with Heidi. Heidi, I gave a little blurb on why I think this, this live cast is important, but in your mind, why is it important to have this discussion on exit strategy? I think there's a whole bunch of reasons, but let me start with one, which is the key word of strategy. So, so much of what we've done throughout this pandemic has all been tactical. It's day by day and it's made people confused. So often when people have contravened guidelines, it's not through malice, it's through confusion. So what we finally need to do in this hopefully last stage of restrictions, let's finally get a strategy and let's communicate to people. And there are several reasons why a strategy is important. Number one, you named it, hope. There's a good four-letter word rather than a bad four-letter word. Let's give people (laughs) hope because one of the reasons why that matters is helps people hang on for a few more weeks. We know we're doing something for a couple more weeks and then we're going to be exiting, feel a bit better about it. But also the strategy element is feeling like we can actually get back to a place where we can do some of the things we did in 2019. So that it's not just a sense of, um, well, we're getting this one thing like outdoors back. So why bother with the vaccine? Because things won't really change. So it's also about motivation. And then the final reason that strategy matters is in, in thinking about building people's confidence in the vaccine and motivating them to get it. If we're tying these things together and say, hey, an exit strategy is here, um, but it also relies on some of these tools and look at all the stuff we have to look forward to and look how quickly it can potentially arrive. So there's a whole host of reasons why it's not just exit, it's also strategy. And that's why I'm really pleased that we're doing this to try and push for that. I love the point you make about the the vaccine hesitancy, I guess, because that could not be intuitive to a lot of people. It's like if you say I get vaccinated and life is not changing, what is my push to get it? You know what I'm saying? And uh, this is such an important point, to which I hope our policy decision makers are considering. And, you know, this is something. So, Monica, like we we. There's places in the world that have an exit strategy, and you're in California right now. Um, maybe you could comment on if you like that California strategy, what is it composed of, or even ideally what you would want to see in an exit strategy? Yeah, you know, I have been actually pushing for not just California, but for the country, the United States, to come up with clean metrics, um, just metrics of when things come off over time. Uh, based on hospitalization rates or case rates or vaccination rates, what have you. Because what that does is exactly what you just said, Heidi, is that I think it, we, the people who want to get vaccinated, they're fine. They're done. They, they would get a vaccine even if you, you know, didn't kept them in mass and distancing for like two years. Like they wanted to get the vaccine. There are people who are hesitant to get the vaccine and you're telling them that you, if you tell them how things change, and you give a glimpse of maybe they're having a pre-pandemic life in their own house, but you can actually go to the movies or you can go to the theater or you can, you know, life suddenly opens up, then it's very motivating. And I think that is this positive motivation aspect that we think about in HIV, at least all the time. It's not always negative and stick, it's carrot, um, uh, is very important. So I actually, beyond California, I've been talking to national people here saying, let's have some clean metrics. And then they gave some clean metrics last week, the CDC and, 
And uh, people weren't ready, actually, to be honest, with the mask guidance. Boy, were they not ready. Um, but but we can go back to that. But I think it is really important. This is the day. So the UK did this, right? Like the UK said on um, May 12th, you can have a big wedding. On June 21st, is first, it's all over. Uh, this is when we'll take off masks. There was like a roadmap. And so people were like, oh, I'm going to plan my wedding after that. I'm going to do this. Like, it's really motivating. So Canada does, um, the U.S. came to it late, though. It's not like we had it from the beginning, but it's just starting now, I think. And so California, June 15th, supposedly all restrictions are over. May 20, uh, two days from now is when New York is all over, meaning New York, literally the governor said today, biggest state, New York said, um, we're done as of two days from now. Wow. Wow. <laughs> they're, and, they're, and they're right. It's the cases are not going to go up. I know people are nervous. But they're right, because the vaccination rate is so high that immunity blows all these other mitigation strategies out of the water. That's what people don't understand. They think if they wear a mask and distance and ventilate, that is just as good as immunity. No, that's like 101, like pathogen pandemics, like immunity is how you get out of a pandemic. And we're so lucky to have these vaccines. Mm. Yeah. Suman, you're going to say something? Yeah, no, I, I, first of all, I, I think that uh, these insights are, are so good. And, uh, you know, Dr. Gandhi coming from, uh, you know, you guys were in a, lot, a long lockdown too. And just to see you guys come out of it has been hope for me. Um, uh, I think the thing, um, you know, we talked about the messaging. Uh, it's so important, I think, also to be positive about it. That doesn't mean that you lie when things are bad. Like I think that, you know, when the third wave hit here in Canada, uh, it was bad. And you, you, want, you want to be honest about that. But I agree that I'm noticing that... Uh, um, the when you get a lot of the doomsday messaging, people end up just turning off and they get desensitized to it. And one thing that I think that has um, concerned me throughout the last, well, whatever it is, how many months, six months we've had vaccine is that significant underselling of the vaccine um, with our um, messaging everything is couched with a but. So for example, uh, we know that the vaccine uh, decreases your chance of getting uh, severely ill, but you should still wear, start wearing a mask, continue wearing a mask. Uh, it decreases transmission, but you should still do everything you were doing before. And the thing is, that is exactly what Heidi was saying is that it just completely makes it seem that life now is not any different. There's no goal to set to look forward to. And you just end up, uh, I, I think that does make people who are not anti-vaxxer, but vaccine hesitant, they move farther away from the fence. Zane? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. When I was thinking about tonight, I was I was really going back to, you know, that original messaging that I think we came out with in February and March of 2020 and how things kind of got changed so much along the way, right? Like, you know, in February and March of 2020, we didn't know how this thing was going to end. We didn't know that the first vaccines that came to the market would be the most effective vaccines. You know, our goal in February of 2020, March of 2020, when things went haywire, was to use non-pharmaceutical interventions as a bridge to salvage healthcare, right? That we could just burn the virus, um, you know, the virus would just burn through the population, but at least we could spare healthcare for, you know, the people that, that needed it, for the care that needed to be provided, uh, and not overwhelm the system. You know, we hit that, unfortunately, in this wave where we did have a significant amount of healthcare strain, and I think we're recovering from it, which is which is a thing. But, you know, it, it, there was, I think, a lot of immature messaging there in, in January, in March, and April of 2020, really 
suggesting that you know our ability to lock down to close to you know to you know push cases to the lowest possible denominator um would somehow eliminate this virus uh and somehow we go to a covid free world at the end of it right and you know i think people are we're slowly coming to the grips. I mean, me and Suman were talking about this. I think the first article me and Suman even wrote together in July of 2020 was like, no, COVID is not going away. This is the this is an endemic virus has reached every corner of the earth. There is no way you're going to be eliminating this, given the viral properties of, you know, uh, of uh, of pre-symptomatic spread, of of you know, in, in, inability to get tested appropriately, of quarantine, and all those things. But we're doing this as a measure right now until better things come down the pipeline. But you know, better things are down the pipeline, right? Like this is these vaccines are incredible. And, you know, like it or not, they reduce transmission, but they reduce that healthcare burden. That was the original intent of everything that we did, right? The goal was not to eliminate COVID from the face of the earth. The goal was to make sure that COVID became an endemic disease that doesn't drive people into hospitals in droves, doesn't collapse healthcare systems, uh, and, uh, and, you know, is part of our endemic milieu of respiratory viruses that I think myself, Dr. Chakrabarty, Dr. Gandhi, yourself, you know, see on a day-to-day basis, right? And, and, you know, again, I think the messaging has so been linked to, you know, an elimination strategy. Well, guess what? Vaccines are the strategy. Uh, and they, as, as Suman had said, we can't minimize this, right? Like these vaccines are incredibly potent. They change the disease process to the individual. They change disease process to society. Israel reported one case of COVID-19 yesterday. One. One. This was a pandemic that was worse than most, worse than the United States at points, worse than the United Kingdom. One case. You know, this is what vaccines do, right? Like that, and I think we really do have to not undersell what life is going to look like in, in one to two months when these vaccines take hold, when our high-risk populations get vaccine-derived immunity where their antibodies are maturing and even the preprint today suggesting that their antibody levels will actually be high even with a delayed dose strategy at about 10 weeks they're going to see higher antibody levels than people who got their second dose right and so you know there is a lot of hope with these vaccines moving forward and i 100% agree that exit strategy needs to be put on the table as part of these vaccines maturing in our population yeah and, and- Sorry, go ahead, Heidi. Yeah, I wanted to jump in on two things. Okay, so I'm going to put on my other secret hat that I wear, which is as a historian, uh, which is to say that uh, epidemics usually don't end, right? There's a wonderful piece by two historians, Jeremy Green and Dora Varga, they wrote last year, which is saying the end of epidemics. And their whole point is basically none of them end. Um, You know, smallpox was eradicated, which was a miracle, but it also took 200 years, right? Thomas Jefferson was talking about smallpox being eradicated in the 1780s. It took us till 1980 to declare it eradicated. So actually history, history already tells us that, that that is the lesson, that epidemics end in weird ways where they become endemic, not where we have zero case in the whole world, the eradication version of things. Uh, so that's one, <laughs> one very quick thing to say. And the other thing I want to say is there's a really super interesting poll out of Angus Reid today that I was looking at before to prepare for this podcast, which shows that actually people's views on vaccines in Canada have been incredibly malleable. And despite the, the messaging, which I agree has had a, a whole host of problems, the number of Canadians who want to get a vaccine is going up, 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 up. We're now at 82% of those who were surveyed who said, I want to get a vaccine or I've already got one and I want to get it ASAP. 
6% said, I want to get one, but I'll wait. Um, and so we're talking already 89%, well, 88, I can, I can add, honestly, 88% of those surveyed said, I want to get the vaccine. That is incredible. That is incredible. So I think that's the other message we want to have as well, because I'm worried that we spend so much time talking about the tiny group of people who are the militant anti-vaxxers, that we're missing the message that, wow, vaccine confidence is just booming. It is incredible to see these numbers. And that's the other thing that gives me actually a lot of confidence in saying an exit strategy is, is genuinely possible because the percentage of Canadians who want to get vaccinated is so huge. Monica? Yeah, I think we are always talking about hesitant when um, there are ways to make people want to have the vaccine. And the best way to want to have the vaccine is celebration, like after, like, I keep on thinking about the Roaring Twenties um, that they said it had something to do with World War One, maybe, but did it have anything to do with 1918 being a pandemic and people having to stay away from each other and how lonely and hard that was? And um, people really, really miss each other. And also we didn't allow people to see each other because we did, we didn't use harm reduction. We used a, you know, kind of blunt approach. And so um, if you, you know, there's these messages in Europe that uh, they have on billboards where everyone's like hugging and like, this is why we're doing it. And they're at a big table eating stuff together. Like we are so austere. I don't know if it's North America or what, but we're so austere about our messaging. They're like, constantly showing what happens after the vaccine is very celebratory. There's a message actually, uh, Monica, that I'll never forget on our, I guess it was maybe our second podcast together where you're like, I, cause I was reluctant to use the, the term like miracle, like, and, and, and I sat with it for a while and I'm like, motherfucker, this is a miracle when you think about it. It's been, it was a year when we were sitting on, are at our our backsides looking into the watching TV on our phone saying, what the hell is happening to the world? This is, this is some scary business here. And then we got vaccines. You're like, I got mine on January. And I'm like, you couldn't help to get a little emotional when I like, I got a January 1st. And I was like, wow, like think about what this represents, you know, like really think about what this represents. And now we're talking in Canada, about about 50% of people got their first dose. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is real. Like, you know, like, this is like, I do, when I do news spots too, guys, like now I will use the term like this miraculous. It really is. We have to use that term because March 11th was the day the pandemic was declared by the World Health Organization. And November 9th was the first press release of a highly effective and safe vaccine. That's not very long. That is a miracle, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, Zane. You know, it's funny you mentioned the uh, the ads around um, around like people getting together and gathering and the normal and like you know I don't want to throw shade at Ontario, but they did the complete opposite with those ads, right? They showed <laughs> the, the people getting together having a great time, and then they showed some guy being ventilated in the ICU immediately <laughs> afterwards and saying COVID is still here, be aware, right? And it's just like it's such a stark contrast, right? So then it's like, you know, like you know, one it should be a celebratory moment. It gets your heartstrings. You feel like you're normal, and then you see the ICU, and then you're shell shocked, and you're never going to leave your house again until you have your two doses of Pfizer, or 14 days apart, and maybe you'll, you know, go to the grocery store at that point, right? But you know, it, again, it, it's just dispelling a messaging here, right? Like it's it's such a 
contrast what we've done with our campaign. And don't get me wrong, COVID is serious. I get it. You know, people are, we, we all work in hospitals. We've all seen the effects. We've all seen the overload that's been there for the last couple of months. But also we have to assume that people understand that COVID is serious at this point, right? If it wasn't serious, you know, you've been living under a rock for the last like year and a half. Um, and, uh, and again, you know, people are looking for hope. And, and that's that's really the context of all of this, right? And, and maybe it's not in the places that are tough right now in terms of the um, um, in terms of the hospitals, in terms of healthcare systems. Um, but you know, the average person is just looking to when can I go out? When can I see my family? Yeah. When you know, why does the government say I can't go outdoors when I couldn't go outdoors before, right? Like, and there, there's just yeah. so much of this lost in all of this, where you know, again, you know, people people should feel proud of this miracle that we're living in a generation where you can make a vaccine that's highly effective in nine months after the declaration of a global pandemic and have that immunization in many people's arms by a year, right? Like it's, it's just you mm-hmm. know, incredible. And, and again, you know, to, to respect it is, is, is um, yeah, is, is part of this for sure. Yeah. And, and like uh, Zane, I think this is part of my fear and the incentive to do this. Like we, you're talking about that fear messaging that we've we experienced locally and it permeates through not not only the campaigns, but when our leaders come on the on the news networks and, and saying what they're saying. And this is my, one of my biggest fears, actually, is when it is, quote unquote, safe. And we'll talk about whether what metrics we should be talking about to which will equate to safe. Um, but there'll be, my fear is that even when it is safe, we will still be, you know, masking in playgrounds or, you know, uh, still putting up um, extra precautions because of that fear-based approach. And so maybe my question to, let's go with um, Suman is, like what what do we think about metrics to when it comes to like opening like what you know what marks are we looking for for not not only opening but even say down the road when we're going to start seeing cases again in the fall what what what's the stuff that we need to be looking at so Zane knows that I, I've been chomping uh, at the bit to answer this uh, Monica I post about this like, like it's more annoying than my gifts that I post the same gifts all the time you've seen some of them I know uh, Heidi you've seen those haven't you um, so uh, one thing that I, I think that for in, in Ontario, actually, I think in all of Canada, is we've been kind of waiting every 10 o'clock in the morning, that case count. I guarantee you, if you stop do, publishing that case count, the provincial case count, the temperature of the entire um, society would drop like 10 degrees like overnight. But the thing is, people have been watching that. And I was mentioning at the very beginning that, look, cases are uh, clearly a metric that were, was important before, but now things are, are quote unquote contaminated with vaccine effect now. So you're going to be seeing cases. But what I kind of uh, go back to exactly what Zane said is, why did we do any of this lockdown stuff to begin with? And if you ask the average person, oh, it's just to stop COVID. And I said, well, no, it's, it's just to slow down transmission so we don't overwhelm hospital systems. So now if you have something that actually pr- takes a inpatient disease and turns it into an outpatient one, sorry, turns it into a common cold, then you can have a thousand cases, but it's not the same because only a small proportion will get in, uh, hospitalized and you don't need to shut down society for that. So that's why my my big thing is that I noticed that, and, and Monica, you actually did mention this just now, is that uh, people are worried about when you start to open up, cases will go up. 
I try to say, well, they might. I, I agree, though, vaccines will blunt that. But at the same time, let's say even if you do have 500 extra cases and it's just a sniffle or people are just at home in bed for a day, who cares? And I think that that's why this whole idea of, of scaremongering, looking at uh, an aggregate number like the case count and you know using that as a, a substitute, like a surrogate for risk, I think is not the right thing to do. So I think the first thing is looking at hospitalizations, which is very, very important. And as we start to see that uh, contract, especially the ICU, which by the way, is already happening here in Ontario, we should really, really start doing on the roadmap to opening and just less reliance on the case count and understanding, messaging the fact that this virus hasn't gone anywhere, but we'll be able to deal with this without shutting down the society in the future. The two words, I have to use these two verbs because I keep on, I really have been waiting to use my two verbs. One is uncouple, right? So hospitalizations become uncoupled from cases because it's no longer um, a severe illness if you, my second verb, defang the virus. So I wanted to say uncouple and defang so badly, and now I got to say both of those. So you just defang the virus, that is, society cannot be closed down for that. And if you publish case count, I keep on thinking the only people who should know next year about how many cases there are is um, infectious disease and, and uh doctors essentially should know how many numbers there are in a society because it won't make, if it doesn't make people sick, then, then why would the general public yeah. know case case? I, I, I'm just wondering how, maybe it's a, might be a tough one, Heidi, but like, how do we message that? Like how I'm, I'm still, I'm, maybe it's just me being so hyper like nervous just because I actually thought even after the first lockdown, I'm like, I went out saying like, man, we learned. We're not going to do the same, have the same approach. We saw how it affected, you know, everything, you know, from delayed cancer diagnosis, kids, uh, maltreatment, uh, joblessness, poverty, like oh, the whole gamut. I'm like, we must learn. We're not going to do this again. But I, I was wrong. And <laughs> I, so I'm still going to be anxious about how do we message this to either the powers of B to the people like we can't be focusing on case counts. It has to be uncoupled, if you will. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a big challenge. And I think you pointed to another big challenge, which I know Zane has talked about before as well, which is that we've had a weird lack of learning during this pandemic, right? Like February, March, 2020 is a different world where this really was a novel coronavirus, but now this is no longer a novel coronavirus. And so we should be learning from the data that we have with this disease and, and you know, stop making the analogies with, you know, other diseases. So that's one of the things that I hope we can sort of hammer home. Is let's finally learn some lessons. And the other thing we can do is learn lessons from other places about how we're messaging around this as well. And that's where I think things like roadmaps are helpful. So Monica talked about the UK roadmap and I have plenty of criticisms of the way the UK has, has dealt with COVID. But one thing that was very helpful finally is to have a roadmap. And the other thing that roadmap had was it had tests, right? It had four tests about whether you were going to hit those dates or not, right? And that I think is also helpful because you're starting to sensitize people into, all right, 
we're not just doing this because it's an arbitrary date of freedom. We actually do have some tests applied to it. And then you can start messaging around exactly what Sumon and Monica were just talking about, right? Here's our exit strategy. Here's what we think we're going to do on these dates. And here are the metrics that we have. And then you can start sensitizing people to this, right? Because it's not going to happen overnight. And, and I think one of the things, you know, there's a whole spectrum of, of things I guess we can all worry about. Um, one is opening too slowly. Another is the people who are going to have all sorts of, you know, issues and phobias around seeing other people indoors. You know, we, there's going to be lots, of, there's a whole spectrum basically of people who are going to have to deal with um, returning to a form of normal. So we need to have, it's going to be a long messaging strategy, but that's one thing I, I think would help is to start adding some of those tests. So we start talking about why case count is going to matter less at this point. And we talk more about maybe hospitalization. So I think it's going to have to be a bit of a long-term one and hopefully where public health officials and others who still have a tremendous platform can be tweaking their message at this point. Maybe they're taking <laughs> Monica's verbs and they're just using them, right? So they've got different, different slogans at this point um, than the ones that we had at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, and it's a good point because we we should have time, right? Like we, I mean, on paper, like with, you know, I'm assuming summer will be like a typical summer, uh, and we will we'll be dealing with what we need to deal with in the fall. But this gives us time to to really get the word out. Say like, let's uncouple like cases when it comes to COVID and really focus on hospitalizations. Um, Monica, were you going to say something? Otherwise, I was going to post a question. Well, I was going to say, um, if you don't give people like a roadmap um, like the UK did, and yes, you can say maybe things didn't go as well before, but there is there was this clear like dates that were really um, fun. Like they actually linked it to fun things like a wedding or, you know, when you said give it a test, like they, they actually had 3,000 people in Liverpool, massless, sweaty, on a dance floor and nothing happened, um, you know, 10 to 14 days later, like in cases, nothing went up um, because they had enough immunity in their population. So they did some like real tests, like Beatles type tests. Um, but, but, you know, um, what happened in this country is that there was a lot of criticism of the CDC saying uh, by many of us, including me saying, well, you're not messaging enough uh, optimism. And I started saying that in February, so a long time before I knew it was going to be this good. Um, but, and, and a lot of other people are criticizing them saying you're being exactly the conversation we're having today, mass and distancing. You're talking about that all the time, even when you've gotten the vaccine. And then they messaged on May 13th, which was just a couple of days ago. Okay, you don't have to wear a mask if you're vaccinated. And the United States went crazy. I mean, people were so nervous and so anxious and some people are like yeah that's really reasonable and i see that you just told me all the data that vaccines are not really profoundly effective you just told me that out of 115 million americans who've been vaccinated there's been um one death in a million from covid when there used to be 586,000 out of 328 million like you've just taken away severe severe disease with vaccines really clearly said that at the press conference um, that that's, this uncoupling has happened and also you can't spread um, by all means after you've been vaccinated. So it was safe to say that it was based on data, but boy, the United States went crazy op-ed. Like it's only been four days and there's been like 20 op-eds written by epidemiologists or infectious disease people saying how nervous they are about this. Um, so we weren't ready uh, if you don't lay it out ahead of time, if you do it kind of all at once. And um, it'll take people a little time to get used to it and then they'll see it's okay. But, but so 
that by not having a roadmap, uh, then now everyone's just trusting the CDC and saying, oh, should they have done it that fast? And I'm like, I think they're just following the science, but, but it was too abrupt. Yeah, Monica, if I can say one thing, I forget who it was who posted on Twitter. You said they might have been following the science, but they weren't following the social science. And I guess I would say they weren't following the communications messaging, right? And that's why yes. that's why strategy, 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 because that was a tactic. It yeah. wasn't a strategy. And so we got to, you know, let's learn this lesson in, in how we're doing it in the provinces and on the federal level in Canada. We have a lot of time and we need to, you know, be getting that hopeful message out there. You know, the UK gives us one example, but we could talk about others and what are the metrics that make sense here. But that, like, we can already see what happens when you don't have a strategy and you don't have messages. Yes, people start distrusting you and go crazy. And they were so anxious and people thought they were going to be infected and uh, people were like yelling at me and staying at home and very nervous and no one left their house for a weekend. That's how nervous they were. So really it's like, yeah, strategy. That's a great point. Yeah. And I mean, we, with all this stuff, sometimes you don't need to recreate the wheel. Look at what's happening throughout other places, even in our own country. We talked about this a long time, like BC being the crown jewel of the way to approach COVID. And it's like, all you do, all our public health has to do is just look, look West, see what's happening there. Then close down schools. You know, I, I'm pretty sure they left op- outdoor activities, right? Yeah. And they're on the, yeah. And then still coming on a better half of this at this time. You know what I'm saying? Um, Zane, you were going to pipe in something? Yeah, no, I mean, Bonnie Henry left 10 people outdoor gatherings, right? And she said very specifically, we need to support a population even in this wave. The outdoors is low risk. We would rather have people meeting outdoors if they have to, you know, they should do it in that context. We are not going to restrict that to our population. Yes, some outdoor recreation did have to settle down as part of this, but, um, you know, there was still a focus on having a safe social space outdoors. And, you know, me and Suman and, and Heidi have talked about this so much, right? Like, you know, I don't understand where our obsession with outdoor transmission started and why it's still ongoing and, and again, it's insane it's insane it's absolutely it is insane. insane right like i don't understand why in march of 2020 outdoors was still reasonable in april may june july august september it was still reasonable in january it became unreasonable and after that it's basically been off the table right and and, and you know i and people are doing it, right? So, you know, I think people understand how to keep themselves low risk. They can read, they can, they understand the literature as much as our public health officials to a point. Um, and yeah, we've made some terrible moves in that, right? Like I, there, there's no reason why outdoor amenities, physically distance outdoor activities, all that stuff should be open right now. Um, and, and, you know, again, our public health officials seem to have tied it with vaccine rates which doesn't make any sense yes. whatsoever. I was going to hit, oh my God. It doesn't make oh any sense, right? Why does 75% of the vac- population have to have a first dose of vaccine and 20% of the population have to have a second dose of vaccine for me to go hiking? 1984, <laughs> man. That's literally what the roadmap says, is I can't hike. Oh my God. Okay, okay, <laughs> that is so, I mean, we're still doing this here. Okay, just as a comment, because like we're not any, so right now, children have to be masked outdoors in a playground in a city that has a 0.6% positivity rate with the 76% vaccination rate in San Francisco, but everyone else who's vaccinated can be outdoors uh, without a mask. So, um, but they're still masking because they're anxious. But honestly, children, so you just said, 
it's just the biology, right? Like the biology is that it dissipates really quickly, the virus outdoors, study after study after study, um, that very little outdoor transmission. University of Canterbury said this in their review in September, and they said, actually, you're going to drive people inside if you don't open up the outside. And that's exactly what happened over the holiday season in uh, in uh, winter holidays and in the U.S. and things got worse. Um, so, so, but to this day, a child has to go mask outdoors right now. It, it, so, it is. Yeah. I, I won't go on my rant yet, but Suma, you were going to say something, but uh, I'm, it's probably better because I feel like I'm going to go off. But um, yeah, Suma, what were you about to throw down? Uh, you know, in terms of messaging, um, another thing that I think that, uh, again, this was new for all of us, but I think that the message that has gone through in Canada, at least, has been uh, almost looking at the public as if they're the problem. Uh, I'm part of the public, too. So, um, you, you know, I remember like in the summertime when things were awesome, we started seeing rises in teenagers and then in, in young. You guys remember that in, in like August, we started seeing that rise in B.C. And the message went out. Rather than, you know, uh, uh, stay outside, you know, uh, things are okay, hospitals are still okay. It was, well, if you're young, you can still get COVID and get hospitalized and die. I was like, whoa. So I think what's happening now is that we're reaping the seed that have been sown at the initial part about everybody thinking that every case of COVID is a tragedy, every case of COVID is a disaster. And now what you're seeing is that, so I, I talk to people with the outdoor stuff is that, uh, you know, I think outdoor is amazing. The first thing I'll get is, well, what about this? What about those 15 kids playing basketball? What happens if one of them breathes on each other, right? And then I think that is, I, I don't blame people for thinking that, but I think the reason people think that is number one, they want to eliminate all transmission and number two is that the overarching theme of what's happening you know at least in peel um monica i work in an area called peel just out of toronto uh, and we have a ton of essential workers multi-generational households and it's this huge occupational to household transmission chain not a single one of these people that i've seen in the hospital and they're like 98 percent of my my ward um was at a home sense lineup or was at the park you know and i think that that aspect of you can't blame those you can't blame people that work in that situation but a lot of it was blame-based messaging and abstinence-based messaging and, and we're all i well you know id docs here that doesn't work and you know i i never saw that change Maybe the occasional no. good message here, but that never changed and it still hasn't changed. Yeah, I, I got to just step in with this outdoor stuff because it's just, it, it gets me so creased because not only is the data supporting it, not only is it a way of us staying connected, not only is it good for our mental health, not only is it good for our physical health when we see cases in the ICU completely related to inactivity diabetes, obesity, hypertension. Like this is what a, a tremendous opportunity that we could have been preaching outdoor living. And the ability for us to cope and mitigate some of those secondary impacts of, of COVID and uh, the restrictions could have been uh, dealt with without uh, preaching outdoor living. And the data supports that, that, it, that it's safe. And I'll tell you this much, I have yet to see or hear of an intensive care patient landing in ICU from an outdoor exposure or a home sense exposure. You know what I'm saying? From, or playing tennis, pickleball. Never tennis, never tennis. No, I'm uh, saying. Wait, can I ask something? Monica, you, was it you talking about the inoculum effect? Yes, yeah, I yeah, did I talk about the knock. That has to be. I actually thing. think it's playing out. It's just that people got so mad at me about that. We got, and, we, we got to explain that to people. And, okay, I'll explain it. We got to explain it. Got uh, so mad. Okay, so the idea was that um, it seemed 
as if you used mitigation measures um, or there was more ventilation that you'd have a milder case. And then we started and we published a paper like in the New England Journal about that that said maybe masks are a form of keeping the severity of disease down because you'll get less inoculum and then you won't get as sick. And then we published a paper in Lancet ID that really went over the evidence for this in other infections because there is a literature um, in other infections. You know, we don't give challenge experiments with COVID. There is one going on in the UK where they're giving increasing doses of COVID. Eek, but you know, good, like they're doing it. So let's see what happens. But like, so to see if people get more symptoms, but that's been done with actually influenza and other um, infections. And it seems like the more you give, the more sick people get. It kind of makes sense. So, um, but when we put it together, we got we got yelled at so much. It was kind of this idea that, well, people will then take dangers. They will still be around each other. And that was actually our, yeah, that was our point that abstinence-based is a terrible thing to do to people. We know this from um, sexual health and HIV and infectious disease, but it was terrible to tell people to stay away from each other when we could have told people to be outside or different ways to keep safe. It was, um, it was really inhuman and um, uh, truly inhuman, actually. It's not human to stay, to, to not be around each other. So, so, but we got really blamed by public health messengers that, um, and I keep on thinking, well, you're not a, like an ID person. I know that's so snotty, but you're not an infectious disease person who maybe think of this. And so then this just actually played out in India. I think it is playing out in India that when there's so much exposure, people between first and second doses are getting mild infections because it does overwhelm the the in the nose i think if you're getting a lot of exposure like healthcare workers but that's the more reason to like be really um really protected in the healthcare setting and also clearly bring down cases in india i mean it's terrible what's happening in south asia so that that is yeah, the inoculum effect got politicized and it got politicized that we may be telling people that COVID is a mild infection of COVID is okay. And that got really politicized. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't and overall believe how much all of COVID has been politicized. It's, it's been, it's, it's really, politicized, I, yeah. I, like, I hate to be blunt like this, but it's literally affect, affected lives. Like it, it really has, There'll be so many history books to write, Heidi. So many. Oh yes, yes. I'm already, I'm already, already at work on my history and policy book around this. <laughs> so much but there's, work. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a lot of things to say about that. And I would, you know, I would. <laughs> the only thing I was going to say is, you know, I've I've had such a different experience in many ways of living through this pandemic in BC, where Bonnie Henry has often had to face the ire of people who wanted her to close everything outdoors. And to her credit, I remember even last summer to her credit saying no. And one of her slogans was fewer faces, outdoor spaces. Right. Um, and there was a moment last um, fall when you know, everything is getting shut down inside, but she maintained the 10 people outside. And again, there was a lot of pushback in there. She's saying, no, you know, this is really incredibly important, but I think that's just to contextualize somebody who stuck with that message had to face a lot of pushback. And I don't think it was easy. It was the right thing to do, right? If we look at the numbers and we think about that, the whole context of it. And also, you know, BC has such a mild winter that it's reasonable that people could actually be <laughs> going for a walk outside in December. But um, it, it's a good example that it was possible, but it did require, I think, a lot of steel backbone on her part because there was a huge... It's so hard to be it, it is. It is hard. And there was a huge amount of, I think, 
pushback on her, but to her credit, she really stood her ground on that. And I think it's made a huge difference um, to everybody's mental health in this uh, province that we have still been able to, to be outside and, and to do things that are so low risk as, you know, as to be called safe. Do, do you guys think, um, so our prime minister, they were using, the, you, you alluded to this too, Zane, this 75% vaccinated, uh, needing 75% of Canadians to get their first dose to for us to gather outdoors safely. Like, I think I know the answer to this, but, you know, number one, where's that coming from? And number two, the, um, well, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, that, that, I think, Suma, you got that expression he was using, one dose summer, two dose fall or some, some shit like that. Like what, what, what is this? What, what is What's the basis of this? And is any of it as, as far as we could tell based on science or is this a more political craftetry? That's not a word, but I like, just made it up. So I, I think where the worry is, is that you let this, you know, living under a restricted lifestyle, da, 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 you know, the reproductive rate is much lower. And so, you know, once you open up, then you, you then introduce a higher reproductive rate and, and, you know, fine, you know, it may happen. And I guess the modeling from a few weeks ago from the public health agency of Canada was okay. You know, when you're kind of getting to that 75, 25 number, then even if you do see a surge, it's not going to necessarily affect healthcare as much, but they used a lot of assumptions and, and, you know, talking about 60% vaccine efficacy, which is probably much, much, much understated. Um, and I, you know, again, you have to use what's happening in the world, right? Yes, I think Canada is unique in the sense that we've had a lot of shielding in the pandemic and there's no natural immunity within the population outside of some regions of Canada, like where Simon and I are, uh, or in some areas of, um, of Toronto and, and uh, some areas of Calgary um, uh, and, and Quebec. Um, but, you know, there is still something to be said about what mass vaccine does in terms of changing transmission dynamics. There's still something incredible to be said about what mass vaccination does to reducing hospitalizations. And, you know, the, the data that was published from Public Health Ontario with a one-dose strategy is incredible. Of 3.5 million doses of vaccine administered, all three types, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Covishield, 0.06% had symptomatic COVID-19 14 days after a single dose. 0.0004% were hospitalized. 0.0001% died. That's after a single dose wow. of vaccine and waiting 14 days. Wow. No, that's... Uh... And, and you remember, our rollout was age-based, right? So, you know, the people that got vaccinated first are the old, older people that were the highest risk, even if they had a breakthrough case of ending up in ICU and dying. And even in that context, you see, you know, decimal points of numbers, right? And, it, you know, it gives me a lot of pause. I don't want to be one of these people saying, you know, it's influenza, it's influenza. But at some point with vaccines, it becomes less, it becomes defanged, as Monica likes to say. It becomes a less virulent disease than influenza, right? And I think 
this is the part that I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with messaging. You know, rightfully so, our ICs are filled. And if you're wrong about it, then clearly we're going to deal with a healthcare disaster. But I think we're seeing in Israel, we're seeing in England, we're seeing in the United States, cases going the wrong way, right? I remember seeing a quote from, I'm not going to say who this famous internist that posted online um, about the fourth wave in the United States, right? Or the fifth wave, whatever wave you guys are on. But like in January and February, talking about when cases started going down and things started opening up, like predicting this like monster surge of B117 and other variants in March and April. And like, you know, the US is going to be in a worse position than ever was before. And, you know, again, you know, I there are people at, I, I was just looking right now at the Carolina Hurricanes game, like a full stadium, right? Like, at, at some point, you know, the, the natural experiment, I know, I know, the natural experiment of how good these vaccines are placed in the population in terms of interrupting transmission dynamics. Yes, we're living with the one dose summer and whatever the hell that means. But even in, in the UK, right, they're showing, uh, they're showing that even that is probably still effective moving forward, right? doesn't mean we give up on the vaccines, doesn't mean we stop vaccinating people, but I think we got to respect what even one dose does to people, right? It is incredible. And we're seeing this in reality, right? I mean, Suman, I, I don't think I've seen, I've seen a handful of patients, I think, over the last month that have been 14 days out from their first vaccine uh, that have ended up in hospital. And the vast majority of them have had some major immunocompromising state where the first dose may not have given them the immunity that they would like in that sense. Um, we're never going to count those cases that never showed up to the hospital that should be in hospital. You know, Monica, you know, our biggest thing in the, in the first two waves was our long-term care homes were disastrous. They were complete, they were death, death zones, right? We would lose 40 people in a week in a long-term care facility. The first vaccines in Canada went there and they literally have turned off cases. It's, it's been incredible. It's incredible, right? Like the highest risk environment, you have 80 times the risk as an 80 year old in long-term care as compared to an 80 year old in the community of dying of COVID-19. And it just turned off immediately, right? That's how powerful this, these vaccines are. And I think we, we underestimate even what one dose does in that population. Yeah, no, it's, I, I, I think, yeah, no, there's, um, the long-term care example is so beautiful and it's, and everyone recognizes it too, right? Like when you say, Hey, look at our long-term care numbers. When we talk about efficacy of, of our vaccines, um, it, it's, it's like, there's no doubt, you know, and, um, Monica, if you're talking to us, you're on mute. I wasn't sure if uh, you're talking, no, she looks like she might be on someone. No, it's all, okay. So, um, but, uh, what I was going to say was in terms of um, kind of talking about a roadmap, we'll, we'll take questions in the next 10 minutes or so. Um, but in terms of roadmap, so like I'm going to, I'm going to use Ontario as an example. We're pretty restrictive and we have a stay at home order right now, whatever that, you know? Um, and so what maybe we'll go with Suman, what would you feel comfortable now or soon in terms of restrictions lifting off. And then if you feel like it, we could add schools in there too, my friend. Okay, I'm gonna get hate for this. So I think that uh, we all, I think we all agree that uh, the outdoors should be opened up um, 
just opened up and uh, like, you know, I think within reason, although I don't even really think that makes much of a difference um, uh, in terms of having, you don't want like a sky dome full of people, but I think having a crowd outside, uh, it, it just has the trade-off I think is, is good for me. So number one, number two, patio dining. Uh, I think that would be quite helpful. I know uh, people talk about mobility. Zain, I'm going to let you make your point because I love this point so much. So I'll leave the mobility aspect to you uh, because it's, it's different now. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, low risk retail, like just having uh, uh, retail open back up for, you know, limited things, uh, and especially for our small businesses. Uh, like I, I sound funny when I say that, but I, I'm from a small town. I have multiple friends who have their businesses have been decimated. And of course, that has an effect on their life. And I think that that's one thing that we can certainly help uh, uh, people to be able to uh, to deal with. In terms of uh, once you start to get into the higher risk things like you know, uh, the things where there's larger groups inside. I, I understand holding off on them today, uh, May the 17th. Uh, we still do want to see some decompression in our ICUs and hospital. But that said, we also have to remember that we're, it's different now than it was even two months ago. Uh, you know, further to what uh, Zane said is that with the, how effective the vaccine is, you're not going to have this the virus ripped through the population uh, like it did, uh, even with, with B117. Uh, so I, I think that we have to remember that we've now protected um, our uh, elderly community living people. We, uh, we've protected the, well, we were, we're in the, the midst of protecting the hot spots. So a lot of things are different. So I can understand waiting for certain things, but I don't think we should wait too long. I think in June, we should have a significant uh, plan of uh, opening things up in steps roadmap. And the other thing that, I, by the way, Heidi, you never mentioned this, but I think it was the case in the UK, all of the um, uh, checkpoints for opening up, they were all one way, right? They made a, uh, didn't they make a point of saying that it was one way, that they would never go back. And I think that was also a kind of a, 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 a pretty good thing, I think. Zane, you were going to, your example? Yeah, I mean, I, I love the idea of the same thing as the UK, right? Give tests. Give, say, you know what, like we are, we have to be under a thousand cases and our healthcare system has to be functioning before we do X, right? And and again, go in that direction. You know, if, if you don't get to that by June 1st, then you know what, it goes down the shelf for a couple of weeks. Everyone understands that's the objective, but that's, that's fine. At least we know in that context. Um, you know, I think the obsession with mobility markers was something that was completely taken out of context in this wave. Um, you know, in January of, or December of 2020, when we dealt with our, our worst part of COVID-19, probably, you know, towards everyone in terms of long-term care, as well as in, in individuals, mobility was a reasonable marker, I think. You know, you have, um, you know, people going to other people's establishments, people going to malls, people going into to high-risk, you know, dining, going into high-risk settings, and the fact that it was minus 20 outside probably didn't mean that mobility was going into places like the outdoors. Well, it's May of, May 17, 2021. It's, you know, right now it's, it was 25 degrees outside today, you know, and everything else is closed. Schools are closed, restaurants are closed, malls are closed. Everything indoors is essentially closed other than I'm sure people are not going in droves to grocery stores to hang out and socialize. Um, you know, at, at some point, that mobility really is people that essentially can't do anything but work, like essential workers, and you're never going to knock down that mobility because, um, you know, that's our facets of society that need to survive. Um, 
and it's people going outdoors. Uh, and, you know, at some point that mobility becomes such a bland marker because people going outdoors aren't going to be the ones responsible for epidemic waves, right? Yeah, you don't want the gathering of Skydome or 100 people outdoors having a party, but, um, you know, the, the 10 people gathering outdoors by the limits having a picnic in the park while socially distanced you know, is that mobility really contributing to a negative goal here? No, absolutely not, right? You know, and I, I think the third benchmark, and I hate, like, I feel like I've been a broken record for, you know, everywhere from December to now, right? We have still not dealt with the workplace safety issue as well as we could. Um, and, you know, as much as we, you know, want the pandemic to end, and we want the drivers of transmission to end with vaccines, which, you know, thankfully it gives us a solution. We still, you know, are putting people at risk going to workplaces, right? We're still putting people at risk, um, uh, you know, by, um, you know, not incentivizing them to get tested by, you know, putting them in, in precarious work situations where taking a day off may be, may be fiscally unstable, where new Canadians that probably can't apply for, you know, any type of these random plans that we have in terms of sick day leave and, and the Canada sickness response benefit, you know, can't or, or don't even have a, a window to access it, um, where new Canadians that are being paid under the table are going to be fiscally unstable. Um, we knew that was a driver of transmission wave one or wave two. We knew that was the driver of transmission going into wave three. I mean, we all saw that in terms of the people that were hospitalized as part of this wave. And we're still sitting here debating about the outdoors um, where that's the setting, right? And we thought, okay, we'll dump vaccines into that place, fine. That's, that's something. Um, but, um, but, you know, it's, it's not everything by any means, right? We gotta still deal with that component as part of a reopening plan. And I, I really, you know, I think it, it fell out of favor to say, okay, we're gonna go vaccinate Amazon. You know, that's gonna fix the problem, but you know, it, it's, it's something we're gonna have to deal with. And, and, you know, even with second doses, I think I've taken a lot of hate saying that, you know, maybe we should actually be deploying our second doses into those places of people that can't work from home as compared to, you know, all the people that are, you know, able to shelter in place and wait a little bit longer for their second vaccine, right? And yeah, I mean, I, I think there's still that part of benchmark of reopening that we really haven't solved as well as we should. And, and I think as part of the plan moving forward, you know, it needs to be on the table as well. Maybe Zane, if I can jump in just with a messaging question as the, as the one uh, doctor who doesn't have to work with other humans, um, you know, I'm still, I'm still waiting for my first dose and I'm okay to wait. Right, and I think that's another message, right? It's not my turn yet. I have the incredible privilege of being able to do all my work through a screen. I haven't seen another one of my work colleagues to do a work thing since March of 2020. And that's okay because I can wait for a vaccine, right? And I think that's part of the, the message, right? It's also, you know, how do we deploy this in a way that actually accords with where the infections are and who are the people where it's okay to wait? I am so excited to get this shot on May 27th but I'm also really happy that other people who needed it more than I do got it first, right? So that's hopefully a way that we can also talk about this conversation. Like we all wanna get out of this and hopefully, you know, despite banging the same drum for a lot of time, maybe there are some messages where we can really, really bang this home by those of us who are waiting saying, I'm okay to wait because there really are people who are in, who are essential workers and others who frankly need their second dose first more mm. than I do. 
No, that's a, that's a great way of framing that Heidi. Um, um, I apologize, Monica had to jump off for a second there, but I, I, I was going to either save it for Monica later, or if any of the panelists felt strongly, where do you feel schools should, in terms of reopening should come into any of this aspect? Um, I, I don't want to put anybody on the spot. And if they don't, oh, Suman, you, you're the first time. I, I, I've taken the, the hit a couple of times yeah. on, the, on the school thing. So um, I, I think that clearly this is a, an, an issue that we want to um, really look at the big picture. I think that we all agree that uh, in-person schooling is very important for kids for multiple reasons, mental health, physical health, development, social um, development. And, you know, we were hearing a lot of things and I was one of those people who joined in it where it should be the last to close and the first to open. I think the first aspect did ring true. It was the last to close, but it hasn't been the first to open. And then sometimes people are saying, well, there's only six weeks of, of class left. Well, those six weeks, you know, for those kids being back, uh, I think would be really, really important. So, um, you know, at the time when we were at the peak of our third wave, there was just so much community transmission that that ends up, the school ends up being something that can act as just further transmission and that exacerbates an already bad situation. But I think that we are already down to a point where the trajectory of our, of our wave here in Ontario has reduced and is reducing, okay, uh, that I think that we really should consider um, uh, opening schools back up again, even in a hotspot like Peel, uh, especially with where the vaccine coverage has been, the trajectory, and the trade-off of just how much benefit kids get from being back in school. I can feel the tomatoes coming at me right now, but I, I think that's really important to, to convey because um, uh, there's just so much, uh, I think we've had a laser focus on COVID and now this is one of the biggest things that we need to to do it to show uh, where the the benefit lies in kids being together. Yeah, I mean, I, I know you feel like the tomatoes are, but I feel like there would be a lot of parents that are sitting there clapping for you. But honestly, you know, full fully understand you're in a hot spot. You can't even staff the place if you're having that much COVID in the in the community. But man, it's time. And for, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the kids have suffered long enough. This is. You know, they're learning on virtual platforms, which have never been validated. We don't know the impact of that. We know uh, child abuse goes up. We know, um, you know, it's impacting their mental health, their well-being. These are our kids. And so when we have that first glimpse of safety, you know, this is this is the time as far as I'm concerned. Okay. I'm going to throw down some of the questions. We're going to do this for the next 20 minutes real quick. I'm going to go to Zane for the first one. What are your projections for the fall? Do you think another lockdown is possible? This is where metrics come in, right? Um, what do we want to see in the fall? Well, we're not going to eradicate COVID, right? That's not what we're going to see in the fall. Even with the vaccine campaign and whatever this one dose, two dose fall is going to be, um, what we hope is come to the fall, our hospitals aren't going to get overwhelmed or, you know, you're going to see the reasonable case activity that you'd see that leads to respiratory virus admissions as part of our normal milieu. Right. You know, the, the, the reality of the situation though, is I think we, we have to be wary of is the way we test for COVID-19 is probably not going to be the same in 
July or August of 2021 when people are getting their vaccines, right? No one's going to go to a testing center when they have a sniffle or a headache when they're fully vaccinated, right? Maybe in certain settings like healthcare uh, or long-term care or high-risk environments. But, you know, the way we do all these case monitoring and case and contact tracing the community is going to fundamentally change because people aren't you know, we, we did this intensive case finding again as an adjunct to slow down transmission so that we don't see healthcare becoming overwhelmed. These vaccines, you know, again, with, with a fully vaccinated individual, their risk of hospitalization is lightning odds, right? You know, and, and, uh, and the risk of death from that hospitalization is even more lightning odds. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I can't see if the benchmark is hospitalizations from a respiratory infection, that um, a lockdown is possible, right? And, and, and again, you know, I don't think people are gonna be tested the same way they are in September, October, November. So we'll only probably get the marker of what's going on in our communities because of what's happening in our hospitals more than anything else. Are there going to be hospitalizations? Yeah, I, I, I can't say they're not, right? They're going to be people that don't make an effective response to the vaccine, that break through the vaccine, um, that, uh, you know, develop, you know, disorders that, that again, you know, make the vaccine in, in, in ineffective, um, you know, and, uh, and that's reasonably expected. But is it going to lead to all the downstream effects of shutting down society and, and financial and fiscal and childhood instability? Probably not, unless hospitals are completely overwhelmed again. Can I add one quick thing to that? This is, um, you know, in speaking to the Canadian, the federal guidelines that came out, this is one of the things that really scares me about those guidelines, which I don't think they're going to follow, to be honest with you. They're very vague, but uh, they talk about the um, one, one dose, whatever, and then two dose fall, right? And the thing is, is that if we have ongoing testing, there's going to be a natural increase in cases in the fall, like you expect when people are, you know, in schools and, you know, and that's when if you have an ongoing lockdown through the summer, without a plan, as, uh, as Heidi, you've mentioned multiple times, all of a sudden, you're going to be faced with these cases going up, and they're just going to want to keep the lockdown, right? Because, because uh, you know, uh, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what's actually happening. So um, I would actually go on a limb to say, I don't think there will ever be another lockdown um, because just, just because of, uh, um, you know, the hospitals being able to handle any, you know, relatively small load that we get uh, that we are able to deal with with influenza and we will deal with it uh, uh, in, in the coming so I, I would certainly hope you're right, Suman. Um, I think the, the follow-up question, the next question answers that too. You guys correct me if you feel like I'm wrong here. I'm wondering what metrics will be for a full school reopening in the fall. I'm worried that for our children, I hope they have a regular school year without mass distancing. They've lost so much already. Out of my opinion would be the same metrics of, of, of hospitalizations in terms of deciding on school opening, especially if it's the first one to open, last one to close approach. Let me know if anyone disagrees or wants to comment. Otherwise, I'm going on. Um, what about variants of concern and the possible need for seasonal or subsequent vaccinations beyond the second dose? Any takers? I don't like putting you on the spot, but if you volunteer, Zane, there you go. Thing, you know, variants of concern have been around. Um, you know, I think we're hearing more and more about them. To date, outside of 
efficacy for AstraZeneca for the South, the variant first described in South Africa, which weirdly doesn't want to actually transmit very much. It seems to be this very unfit virus where it's not actually represented on the global scale very much. It shows up in small clusters. It's able to kind of sustain, but it's not able to grow outside of what happened in South Africa. Regardless, that one showed some ineffectiveness for mild COVID-19. There are animal models likely suggesting that it is probably fine for severe COVID-19 in, in, in AstraZeneca. Outside of that one example, a full series of vaccine seems to have effects against every single one of these variants in terms of transmission, in terms of symptomatic COVID-19, and significant effects in terms of hospitalization and death. Um, and so, yes, you know, is there a potential for a vaccine, you know, immune escape variant to emerge? Potentially, although, you know, again, we, you know, again, from a virology standpoint and, and people that have dealt with HIV, as you get more mutations to things like drugs, viral fitness is actually a cost to all of this, right? And so, you know, immune escape isn't as simple as you're going to have a super variant that can infect everyone and get through the vaccine without necessarily compromising something in terms of viral fitness at that point. It's a small genome virus. There's only so much it can do in, in one single swoop. Um, so again, I think, you know, the variants of concern, the solution is vaccines. And, and I think, you know, myself and, and Monica have been pretty also aggressive in talking about vaccine equity as part of a vaccine approach. You know, are, are the, the two major variants of concern now that are seeming to, to scare most people are the ones derived from India. That's our fault. You know, that's that's us saying that, you know, uh, being global hoarders is is going to save us from this pandemic um, without looking at vaccine equity, right? And there are places in the world with huge numbers of cases, huge numbers of immunocompromised individuals where these variants are going to escape over and over and over again, right? And if we don't actually take that global equity focus, we're going to be left with the same problem with the new variant here and there and everywhere, right? So, so again, you know, if you, if we if you if you want to do something about the variants, put pressure on our politicians. President Biden today did the right thing, donating 80 million doses of vaccine to Covax in the developing world. You know, that's that's what we need to do to stop variants from emerging. But I think you know, in the grand context, our vaccines are still effective. You know, I don't think we're going to need boosters for quite some time, knowing how pro profoundly they affect B cells and T cells. Um, and uh, and yeah, you know, our, our solution to variants isn't necessarily more vaccines for us. It's more vaccines for the world in that sense. Monica, would you say you like T cells? I mean, the thing is, actually, this is really interesting what happened with this variant story in a way, because um, it was that, you know, if you treat HIV, so that would be any infectious disease doctor, it's not like you don't think about T cells every second of every day because T cells are the actual um, cell that HIV infects. And so then the press got a hold of the word variant and and so did some scientists who who um, didn't have as much experience, I think, with immunology and just looked at the antibodies against a virus, which are over here and they're just the tip of the iceberg in terms of how we fight viral infections and didn't think about T cell responses, which are actually the best way to fight viruses in the human body. And T cells, um, if you have low T cells, it's why you can have severe viral infections like people living with HIV. And so, yeah, it's very hard to evade T cell immunity from any of these variants. 
Um, and uh, and T cell immunity is very complex and you have to measure it in special labs. So maybe it was harder to talk about it, but variants, it's exactly right. Um, what you said, both of you, Zane and Saman, like you can't um, mutate yourself out of existence. I mean, uh, it, you can't keep on getting mutations uh, because something that will make you more transmissible as a virus will hurt you in other ways uh, because it does have a cost. So the best thing that we can do to get through this pandemic is get any vaccines that we're not using. And I really do appreciate President Biden, what he said today, but we have more than uh, than he is giving um, because the Duke Research Center actually went ahead and just calculated exactly how many doses that we have in surplus, even if 12 to 15 year olds are vaccinated here and it's 300 million. Um, so we, yeah, so they calculated very uh, carefully actually tweeted this today. So they, they, so we do have more than 70, 80 to give. We have, um, we can go ahead and give those 220 million doses um, to places where literally hospitalizations and deaths are occurring when they don't have to occur because vaccines are the solution. I mean, one thing that pains me about India is that India and South Africa went to the World Trade Organization in October and they said, um, can we use that TRIPS patent? Uh, can we make sure that we get vaccines? Because we hear they're just about to declare that on November 9th that Pfizer had a good vaccine. Um, and the World Trade Organization said no. Um, no, they said no. And so um, and then and then and then March 5th was when that uh, cases started going up in India. And it was that day that the big pharmaceutical companies wrote a letter to President Biden and said, don't, this is an unfortunate proposal by India, this whole like, give them vaccines, let's not do that. Um, and so we could have averted, if those vaccines had been there, we could have averted this pain and suffering, a lot of this pain and suffering. So um, there is nothing to be done, but vaccine vaccinate the world and not 2022 and not 2023, um, this, this year. I mean, it's tragic what's happening, but I, I think that messaging of you want to like you want to manage this variance talk, vaccinate the world. You know what I'm saying? And knowing that things are so effective after you're fully vaccinated, you know, there there really isn't there's incentive there to not only from just to being a, like a human being. You know what I'm saying? Like when you know people are experience undue like unnecessary harms but you know it it will directly impact us all eventually um wow um okay there's a few questions regarding basically the, to summarize a few of the questions when can we what, what do you think like when people are fully vaccinated what what should they be allowed to do like I guess it's kind of a hard question. I'll start with this. Should fully vaccinated people be allowed to do certain things like indoor gatherings before other before the others? If if so, how would we message and or monitor that? Do you see a role for vaccine passports domestically? Um, Zane, you're unmuted, but I, I think you're already unmuted. Um, I can talk if you want. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. yeah you, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think you know, right now there's an optics issue in Canada because people can't access a second dose unless they're a healthcare worker and long-term care have a significant number of underlying conditions. 
it's hard to then say, okay, you privileged people can go hang out together, right? It's a bit of hunger games to say, okay, well, I want a second dose because I can, right? So, you know, I think it certainly is a tool to pull in June and July to start actually pulling that out and saying, okay, you're fully vaccinated, you can get together now, right? Uh, and uh, and to get people, as we know, because there's a bit of chaos getting that first dose in, get people into their second dose to say, okay, here's your here's your carrot, right? Like the rules change for you in, in a couple of weeks. Uh, and I think the CDC, you know, as much as Monica probably is taking a ton of flack for this, that's part of the carrot, right? Like that, that is the carrot, right? Like there, there is a purposeful decision by the CDC to release this right now when, when vaccine rates are slowing down in the United States where people are trying to use things like lotteries and sports events and whatever to vaccinate people, to throw people another carrot and say, your life is going to change in five weeks now. Start your vaccine series now, right? So, um, uh, you know, I think there's definitely a role for it. Um, it's just hard with the optics of the fact that in Canada, people can't get a second dose right now, right? And and uh, and hopefully again in June, July, that that can get pulled and that string can get pulled to get people back in for their second dose. If I can be devil's advocate to that, though, is that um, I think that doing like I get it that we're in a transition period where some people are vaccinated, some aren't, but there has to be some concession given to somebody who has been vaccinated, especially knowing just how first uh, how effective the first dose is. By the way, Dan, I know that's not what you're saying. I I totally get that, that you're you're not underselling the vaccine, but you know at at some point I think that even if it's like. like Public health, the way that I look at it, it's not telling you what to do. It's kind of giving you a, a framework of what's safe, right? So the thing is that, um, of course, we don't want like a whole bunch of people, uh, you know, 30 people getting indoors and having a having a, a Sangeet night, which by the way, um, Monica here in, in, uh, in Brampton or in Peel where I am, it was the biggest cause of super spreader events. Uh, remember Zane in the summertime? You know, I'm Punjabi, so I mean, yeah. I don't know if you know that, but go ahead, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, but 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 the, the but the point is is that I think that if you can if you maybe not now today but as May st it starts to roll around as June starts to roll in you give people that look if you are vaccinated with two doses and you're hanging around with the majority vaccinated people and then you know you give risk factors for example if you have any health conditions or you're on cancer chemotherapy and then allow people to make their own risk assessment and be together as opposed to don't hang out as opposed to don't get on the beach and have an amazing party at Cherry Beach this weekend. I don't know if you guys saw that. That, was, that, that, that looked fun. Not that I was there. But, but anyway, again, it, it dates back to the whole um, abstinence thing. But I really do think that as part of the roadmap, we should be telling people um, what happens when you get uh, one dose of vaccine or two doses of vaccine and the types of safe things you can do. So I think if I can jump in, you know, back, back and the way that we even met in the first place was through the report I wrote about, you know, how nine countries communicated around COVID in the first six months of COVID. And I developed this rapid framework, right, which was a bunch of acronyms. And the R was rely on autonomy, not orders, um, which obviously unfolds with all of the kinds of things we've been talking about, avoiding abstinence-based messaging, avoiding stigma, et cetera. Um, so this is exactly that point of giving people tools. Give people some air, like let them know where the boundaries are and enable them to make choices within that, right? So it's this principle of you can meet outside, right? Giving people those outlets. And so I think, you know, that debate about 
how do we deal with this vaccinated, unvaccinated? Um, looking at it through the, the lens, you know, the US is a complicated place due to the politicization of the vaccine and the fact that a lot of people um, are, going, are sort of using this as a tool to say they're going to pretend to be vaccinated. So I think there's some US context to the CDC stuff that doesn't quite apply in the same way. In Canada, which I would say with very broad brushstrokes, having lived in, in both places, there is a bit of a different philosophy to how Canadian society works. This is very broad brushstrokes, but there is a kind of uh, wait your turn sense here that I think one could play on if we communicate well about the metrics. So, you know, the CDC version of things has gone down a bit of an individualistic path, right? Like it depends on are you vaccinated or not? You have to kind of police yourself. And that's, I think, opened some complex doors in the US that I think in Canada, what if we have different metrics? So I was a bit where I think PHAC was trying to go with this 75%, 20%. But that may be an easier thing to deal with because I'm thinking about, you know, and another way to think about this is, you know, then you get into this world of it really is a kind of um, consent world because people are going to have very different levels of comfort. Like I know some people where it does not matter if they have two doses. If there is one case of COVID in all of Canada, they don't want to go with you indoors. So actually the point, and, and the, because they have real fears and, you know, they have real phobias that have developed over COVID. So that actually a part of it is going to be almost like consent, right? Like what are people willing to do. So I guess my sort of two cents would be, let's give people that room for autonomy. Maybe let's tie it to more collective metrics to avoid some of the game playing that I think is, is going to cause tension in the US. And then we're going to have to recognize individuals. There's going to be a kind of consent basis to this because all of us are going to know people in our lives who are truly scared of being with others indoors, even if everybody is vaccinated. And it's going to take some time <laughs> uh, for them. And that that's also okay, that we, we maybe don't need to push them too hard because they're going to get there. They're just going to need a bit of time. One thing I would say is doctors usually message like based in a very nuanced way, in a very like risk-based way. You can eat this, you can eat this on Thanksgiving. Of course, you can have dessert on Thanksgiving, even if you're diabetic. Like, and um, I think sometimes the messengers are not people who sit and talk with people about risk every mm -hmm. day. I, I do think, I mean, I want to talk about a little bit about the risks assessment with Monica, but first, like I want, I was recently in the ICU and, and where we sit at a distance when we give handover with our residents, uh, you know, everyone's six feet apart or whatever. And, and the resident had to, was drinking coffee, put his mask down and, and he apologized for, putting his mask down to drink coffee. And I'm, I'm like, like, let's get real here. We all got our two doses and we're sitting around like you, you, you could put your mask down to have a uh, drink of coffee. So I, what I'm segueing into Monica is, you know, I don't think people really have an idea of what their true risk is, whether they, they are vaccinated, whether it's a child, whether like I saw one of your tweets, was it yesterday about or the day before about getting hit by lightning versus somebody dying of COVID um, or a vaccinated person? It's higher to be lit, hit by lightning than dying of COVID after you after you uh, get vaccinated. And it's higher by about five times. So um, but that risk idea, you're so right. We, we haven't incorporated that like children being lower risk seems to be a very strange thing to say and yet it's epidemiologically a controversial thing to say but there's no controversy mm -hmm. about it like children are at lower risk and thus our school closures were more for adults than for children and today i do need to mention that finally i mean not finally it's terrible but 
California suicide rate among young people uh, did go up last year compared to 2019. And this was the thing that we were um, hoping wouldn't happen. So, so, I mean, school closures, we all on this call understood that uh, we, we sacrifice children um, in our school closures, but, but they are at lower risk. And it's just a fact, it's just a fact. Right. And um, so that that stratification of risk, you know why we stopped thinking about risk, because we scared people so much. We made them think that every single person next to you in, in a store has COVID and that not only that, but if you get COVID, you will definitely die. And that's how we messaged to keep people away from each other. And then it's hard to get out of that message, which is why the mask guidance in uh, the United States was met with so much resistance over the last three days. People are so scared. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because I mean, we there was a question in there, and we, you know, a lot of questions tied to risk. Like, can my child hug? If we got one vaccine or one dose, and I want to hug my grandkids or my grandkids, my my parents want to hug their grandkids. Like, is that okay? And and once again, it's 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 risk assessment. Like, obviously, when you're you 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 know you've been vaccinated, you and you're dealing with kids, it's low, but you know, what's, do you have a, a comorbid condition or you have COPD? Do you have, you know, are you on a, uh, immunocompromising medication? Like it's all part of the equation, but ultimately when you, you factor in a, a lot of these things, as more and more of us are getting vaccinated, the safer and safer these, these, uh, like these gestures and these, be, being together is is being coming safer and safer. Um, I'm cognizant of the time. I know there's a lot of questions out there. I I, I do want to say if if there's any, I just want to leave a, uh, uh, any opportunity. If there was any parting words that anybody felt strongly about, um, and if there isn't i'm talking slowly just in case yes heidi thank i had one i had yeah. one which is i think you know monica is right this point of the fear basis and now we're in a bit of a situation of how do you get out and how do we risk message so you know there is an entire center at cambridge around risk communication because humans are very bad at it <laughs> we're just really bad you know the obvious example that we all know um now the other one for me it's going to be lightning versus dying of covid if you're fully vaccinated the other one is you know so many more people are scared of flying in a plane than driving in a car even though statistically driving a car is much much more dangerous so you know we actually have really good science on how to do good risk communication it's been a tragedy that we haven't implemented it during this pandemic but we still have a chance to do it now right this is not over let's implement um, what we know from the winton center etc let's do it now one other thing we can do is we can stop talking about risk like it's a light switch it's a dial right it's a notch up notch down um, and i hope we can start talking about it like that as well because people i think have really conceived of the covid risk as like a light switch either it's on or it's off, um, but it's actually a dial, right? So maybe we can start using some better metaphors to talk about this as well, to to give people the tools to understand where we're heading. Brilliant, brilliant. I like that a lot. And I mean, this might seem random, but you know, it's 2021. There should be an app you could just plug in a couple parameters in, using a little bit of AI, saying like where you live, using, you wouldn't even have to plug in that much. Maybe even just put in your age. And uh, and a bit of your demographic, um, and be able to spit out a risk calculator in terms of really what you need to worry about. Yeah, you've been vaccinated. What date and so forth, you know. And uh, do you have these comorbidities? Um, you know, 
maybe people would be too, maybe they're too fearful that people would be too liberal with that kind of information. But I don't know. I'm a, I'm a big fan of giving, giving people some, giving, like having faith in the people, like, you know, people aren't stupid. And I, I think, you know, um, we, we do have to give them a bit of people, a bit of credibility here, but anyways, guys, I want to thank you audience. If you missed out on this, type in news and EWS. If you want to get the audio or the video, type in SW if you want to be part of the movement solving wellness. But I I, I gotta give mad love, Heidi, Zane, Sumon, Monica, and little Elroy. I don't know who that doggy is. Frodo! Frodo! Frodo, he looks like Frodo. Frodo. Oh, so cute. Mad props, guys, because this is what we call, we call it changing the boogie on the show. We we take the problems, we hear the voices of the people, and we address it full, full on. And you guys, this was a tremendous conversation. I know it's going to, um, I, I feel like it's going to mold the conversation within our country. mountains in Canada. Yeah, like it, it's okay. hard to ignore this. It's hard to ignore when you got these minds coming together and uh, advocating in this way. So thank you. And uh, you guys stay safe. We really appreciate you guys taking the time. It meant, meant the world to us. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Be safe. Thank you. And get vaccinated. <laughs>